This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Although we sometimes praise a person who suffers for not sinking under his suffering, we still tend to suppose that that sufferer is to be ranked more among life's losers than among life's winners. Even if we think of a person who stands under his suffering as heroic, we tend to think of whatever is good in his life as happening in spite of the suffering. And in general, we are inclined to find perverse anything that values the suffering itself. On the contrary, anything that undermines physical or mental thriving strikes us as lamentable. The current disability rights movement is an exception to this general attitude. Like the gay pride movement, the disability rights movement wants to celebrate what others have generally pitied or disrespected as the suffering of misfortune. The disability rights movement wants others to see that those with disabilities are not among life's losers or even among life's heroic overcomers of the tragic. Instead, the disability rights movement holds disability pride parades. Here's an excerpt from a text by Sarah Triano, the founder of the Chicago Disability Pride Parade. She says, the sad sack, the brave overcomer, and the incapable are worn out stereotypes the parade refutes by giving us a time and space to celebrate ourselves as we are. First, we wanna show the world the incredible joy that exists in our lives. We are part of the richness and diversity of this country and the world. The pride is an international, the parade is an international celebration of our continued and continuing survival. By marching in this parade, we are giving the world a chance to express pride in us too. Now from the patristic period onward, the Christian tradition has held a roughly analogous position to that of the disability pride movement. The patristic period wasn't thinking about disability, it was thinking about suffering in general. It supposed that those who endure serious suffering are not the pitiable losers of life or even the heroic overcomers of tragedy, but rather are those who are specially loved by God. That is because on that patristic view, Suffering is not only medicinal for the human condition, it is also a gift of God's to those people who are nearer to God. So the great patristic author, the great patristic orator, John Chrysostom, says of people who are scandalized at the sight of human suffering, he says, they do not know that to have these sufferings is the privilege of those especially dear to God. Now, clearly, there is something right. There is something right about the contemporary, unreflective rejection of suffering as bad. Someone who valued suffering as an intrinsic good would be mentally disturbed at best and evil at worst. But there is nonetheless something worth exploring in the Christian attitude towards suffering as a gift. In this lecture, I want to look closely at the relevant Christian doctrines to see what can be said to explain this attitude towards suffering and to distinguish it from
from the neighboring perverse attitude that sees suffering as an intrinsic good. So that's my aim. There is a biblical text in 2 Corinthians that expresses the relevant Christian attitude in a paradigmatic way. And I think it will be helpful to approach the examination of suffering through the claims made in that text. In that text, Paul, who is generally taken to be the writer of this epistle, Paul makes this claim. He says, As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolations abound through Christ. Now, according to this claim, for a suffering person in grace in this life, her suffering is somehow correlated with consolation which she has in or with Christ. The comfort and help a sufferer has from Christ intensifies as her suffering increases. That's the claim. Later in that same epistle, Paul says, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are all changed into the same image from glory into glory through the Spirit, the Lord. And Paul goes on to connect the glory of that union with suffering in this way. He says, Our light afflictions, which last only for a moment, bring about for us a far greater eternal weight of glory. So in other words, according to Paul in this epistle, the suffering endured by a person in grace is one source of that person's spiritual loveliness, that person's glory. And on Paul's thought in the epistle, something about suffering which seems to deprive a person of flourishing actually enables or enhances the flourishing of the sufferer. So to begin to understand this complicated thought about suffering, consolation, and glory, it's necessary to work slowly through its elements, beginning with the nature of human flourishing. Although discussions of human flourishing are by now something of a cottage industry, and certainly uh, there are philosophy faculty at this school who have written very effectively about it, Although discussions of human flourishing are by now something of a cottage industry, for my purposes, a person's flourishing can be thought of as his thriving. So understood, the opposite of thriving is not being sick. The opposite of thriving is being dysfunctional. So the failure to thrive is a broad category that encompasses any kind of impairment or any kind of impediment to the proper functioning of some part of a person or even of the whole person himself. Thought of in this way, it's evident that thriving comes in different modes. To begin with, we can distinguish the thriving a person has when he suffers no impediments as regards his body from the thriving a person has when he suffers no impediments as regards his mind. That is, we can think of thriving either as bodily thriving or as thriving in the mind, and it's possible to have one of these modes of thriving without the other. So, for example, there are people who are in excellent bodily condition, but who suffer from mental illness or some other impediment of mind. So there's Buzz Aldrin. He was in peak athletic condition when he flew to the moon in 1969. But later, he acknowledged that he also suffered from serious depression. And on the other hand, there's Harriet McBride Johnson. Clearly, it's possible to have great bodily impediments, but to be thriving in mind. And she is an excellent example. She was a highly accomplished, highly intelligent disability rights activist, but she had serious bodily impediments. 
In her New York Times Magazine article, which chronicled her extended arguments with the well-known philosopher Peter Singer, a Princeton philosopher who advocates, who advocates preventing the birth of people with disabilities, Harriet McBride Johnson described herself this way. This is what she said about herself. She said, I'm horribly thin. My flesh is mostly vanished. I'm a jumble of bones in a floppy bag of skin. My right side is two deep canyons. To keep myself upright, I lean forward, rest my rib cage on my lap, plant my elbows beside my knees. I am the first generation to survive to such decrepitude. So by her own description, Harriet McBride Johnson suffered from significant impediments as regards bodily thriving. On the other hand, however, her meaningful work and her excellence at it, her very ability to handle exchanges with such opponents of the disability rights movement as Peter Singer and to handle them with intelligence and courtesy and wit, all these things testify to her thriving in mind. Now, there is a general consensus that other things being equal, thriving in mind outranks bodily thriving. That is, few people would be willing to trade diminished bodily thriving for comparable diminishments of thriving in mind. And this common attitude seems right. On the scale of value commonly found in the Christian tradition and in much contemporary secular thought also, the best thing for human beings is a matter of relationships. And if they are serious enough, impediments with regard to thriving in mind are more of a barrier to relationships than roughly comparable impediments to bodily thriving are, other things being equal. And yet, even for human beings with serious cognitive impairments, meaningful and fulfilling relationships of love are possible. The philosopher Eva Cate makes this point in a moving passage about her own daughter, and that passage is worth quoting at length. Eva Cate says, Philosophers have made much of the importance of rational capacities for the exercise of moral judgments and moral actions. But many philosophers have seriously understated the critical role other capacities play in our moral life, such as giving care and responding appropriately to care, empathy and fellow feeling, a sense of what is harmonious and loving, and a willingness to reciprocate giving and receiving kindness and love. Consider in this connection a young woman, and she's talking about her own daughter. Consider in this connection a young woman whose rational capacities are difficult to determine because she lacks speech, among other skills. But her capacity to enjoy life, to share joy through smiles and laughter, to embrace those who love and care for her, and to bring joy to all whose lives she touches, an individual who through her warmth her serene and harmonious spirit and her infectious love of life enriches the lives of others. Whether or not she would know what it means to determine her own good may be in doubt, but the good she brings into the world is not. Furthermore, on the traditional Christian scale of values, the greatest relationship, the greatest personal relationship is with God, and so the greatest thriving for a human person is in that relationship. And here's the thing. Even serious impediments to thriving in mind are not a bar to a human person's relationships with God. 
So consider, for example, this report of religious experience on the part of someone suffering from significant mental illness. This person said, At one time I reached utter despair and wept and prayed to God for mercy instinctively and without faith in reply. That night, I stood with other patients in the grounds, waiting to be let back into our ward. Suddenly, someone stood beside me, and a voice said, Mad or sane, you are one of my sheep. I never spoke to anyone of this, but ever since, 20 years, it has been the pivot of my life. Now, even among those with both bodily thriving and thriving in mind, Few people have such powerful religious experiences. The religious experience this patient reports was so great as to center his life for a long time, as he tells the story, and to bring him consolation through that whole period. The closeness to God of the original experience and the ongoing relationship with God it provoked were great enough to endure through many years of this patient's life. You can see then that although other things being equal, serious impediments to thriving in mind are more likely to undermine a person's flourishing than comparable impediments to bodily thriving are. Flourishing in loving personal relationship is nonetheless possible even with significant impediments to thriving in mind. Furthermore, as the example of the patient's religious experience illustrates, when God is one of the relata in the relationship, then even those things that might obstruct relationships between two human beings, such as major mental illness, are not a bar to relationship. Manifestly, an omnipotent, omnipresent God could make relational contact with a human person challenged by a serious impediment to thriving in mind if only that person did not resist God's love and grace. So what these considerations should help us recognize is that bodily thriving and thriving in mind do not exhaust the modes of thriving for human beings. A human person can have impediments to thriving of both body and mind because, for example, of the ill treatment of others and the lasting bodily and psychological damage of that ill treatment, and yet that person can have thriving as a human person. So there is a third mode of thriving. Now, Harriet Tubman seems to me a good example of this third mode of thriving. She was born a slave, and from early childhood on, she was recruitly separated from her family. When she was six or seven, for example, she was farmed out to a different household as a house slave, as a nanny. In that job, child though she was, she endured severe beatings, and she was often deprived of sufficient food and adequate clothing. Later in life, as a result of the abuse of one slave master, she suffered a serious head wound, which left her with lasting neurological problems. Throughout the rest of her life, she seems to have suffered from narcolepsy and other manifestations of brain damage as a result of that injury. And it's difficult to believe that in addition to the neurological problems she suffered, she didn't also have lasting psychological problems from the trauma of the abuse she endured as a child. And really, you know, this is only the beginning. The story of the suffering of her life is too great to be summarized <clears throat> adequately in short space. 
and it is hard to say even in abbreviated form because the cruelty inflicted on her is heartbreaking. When she was a young woman, Tubman succeeded in escaping from slavery, and she spent all the rest of her long life rescuing other slaves and working for the abolition of slavery, often in very dangerous circumstances. When a biography of her was being prepared during her lifetime, she asked Frederick Douglass, the famous, the sophisticated, the marvelous Frederick Douglass, to write a recommendation for the cover of the book. And this is what he, so worthy of honor himself, this is what he wrote to her. He said, You ask for what you do not need when you call upon me for a word of commendation. I need such words from you far more than you can need them from me, especially when your superior labors and devotion to the cause of the lately enslaved of our land are known as I know them. I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have. The great honor in which Harriet Tubman was and is so rightly held by so many people, me included, bears witness to her thriving as a human being. She is not a bent or a broken or an otherwise failing specimen of the human species. On the contrary, she is a shining example of humanity, and we do not honor her out of compassion as someone who heroically overcame the tragic circumstances of her life. Rather, anyone with integrity has to acknowledge that she sets a standard for human greatness and so also for thriving as a human being. But she had that thriving with serious impediments to thriving of body and thriving of mind. What the case of Harriet Tubman shows us is that thriving of body and thriving of mind are neither necessary nor sufficient for personal thriving. That is, there's a third mode of thriving, and it's hard to know what to call it exactly, but because it seems to be the thriving of the whole person rather than the thriving of a part of a person, as the thriving of body or mind is, we can just call it personal thriving. And because it is the thriving of the whole person, personal thriving outranks either thriving of mind or thriving of body or both of them combined. Human flourishing then is not just a matter of thriving in body or thriving in mind, it's a matter of thriving as a whole person. And this thriving can occur even when a person suffers from significant impediments as regards both body and mind. As the example of Harriet Tubman illustrates, the depredations of other human beings, the consequences of severe poverty, the misfortunes of nature, and other similar afflictions cannot take away from a sufferer the possibility of flourishing. For even resplendent human flourishing, it is not necessary that the impediments to thriving of mind or body be prevented or removed. And here I want to pause and say, I recognize, of course, the troublesome appearance of this claim and the dreadful misuses to which it can be put. Nonetheless, think about it this way. If this claim weren't true, then human flourishing would be another monopoly of the wealthy Western industrialized countries, or at least a monopoly of the upper classes in those countries. Wealth can go a long way towards the prevention and the amelioration of impediments 
to the thriving of mind and body through the nutrition, the medical care, and education that wealth makes possible. But wealth is neither necessary nor sufficient for human flourishing, and consequently neither is thriving of body or thriving of mind that wealth helps to produce. And I want to add hastily and loudly here that this claim should be no consolation for those people who cause suffering to others or whose indifference to suffering contributes to the suffering of others or who fail to remedy the suffering of others when they can readily do so. That is, that flourishing is compatible with suffering does not imply that such people are not hateful in their conduct. It is hard not to notice that just as the patristic thinkers supposed, some diminishments in thriving of body or thriving of mind can in fact be woven into personal thriving. That is, the bodily or mental diminishments in thriving can in fact contribute to personal thriving, not because they constitute challenges that a suffering person surmounts, but because those very diminishments are themselves <clears throat> part of that person's thriving. The diminishments are integral to personal thriving in the sense that their removal would constitute the removal, or at least the lessening, of the personal thriving. Harriet Tubman's suffering from the depredations of the slave society around her and her consequent impairments in both mind and body seemed to be part of the fabric of her character, marked by her charismatic leadership in her society and her self-sacrificial care for others. Or think of this same point the other way around. How many people who live an upper-class life without much serious suffering, without much of any impairment in mind or body, how many of those folks count as having great personal thriving? How many people in a life of ease with little tribulation in it, how many of those folks seem to be an example of human flourishing that the rest of us would love to be like? On the contrary, greatness of personal thriving seems to be found largely, if not exclusively, among those who suffer greatly too. It's difficult to think of anyone who lacks such suffering and who yet excites in us powerful admiration for the personal th thriving of his life. That suffering can lead to great personal thriving seems to me overwhelmingly confirmed by evidence of all kinds, including historical reflection, psychological studies, and plausible fictional narratives. But why? suffering should have that impact is much harder to see. On the scale of value for flourishing, which is maintained in Christian theology and which is widely held even by those who reject that theology, human flourishing has relationships of love at its heart, as I said a little earlier. But the post-fall human condition, our condition, is characterized by a tendency to turn away from such relationships into a kind of willed loneliness, a kind of willed isolation. And so the postful human condition inclines a person in a direction that undermines flourishing 
when flourishing is understood as a matter of relationships of love. Suffering can make a difference to this condition in varying ways. To take just one example, because suffering is aversive, it can drive a person to seek amelioration from the suffering, to seek help from the suffering. And that help, that amelioration, will have to be sought, at least in part, in the remedies other people can provide. Or if all remedies fail, then suffering can incline a person to seek just the consolation that other people can give by their presence and compassion. Even when suffering cannot be taken away or diminished, it can somehow be made more bearable by the consolation of the presence of loving others. For one reason or another, then, suffering can break in on a person's inwardness. The aversiveness of suffering can fuel a person's willingness to seek connection with others. A suffering person may turn to other human beings, but it is also widely recognized that in suffering, a person is likely to turn to God, even if this turning comes with anger or protest, as it does in the case of Job in the biblical book. It is common to find religious belief and religious experience among those in distress. It is much less common to find deep religiosity among those who are at ease. For Harriet Tubman, God was always present to her and engaged with her. One of her biographers describes an experience that was typical for her. It occurred at the time in her life when she was first contemplating returning to slave territory to rescue other slaves. The biographer says, she had great fears about her future course and she confided to me, she said, the Lord told me to do this. I said, oh Lord, I can't. Don't ask me, take somebody else. But Tubman reported that God spoke directly to her. It's you I want, Harriet Tubman. As this and many other anecdotes from Harriet Tubman's life illustrate, suffering is part of an ongoing process in a person's life in which flourishing can develop and increase. The correlation between suffering and flourishing depends on second personal relationships of love, and those relationships are dynamic. They're not static. They're dynamic even where God is concerned. It's part of traditional Christian theology that God will give grace to anyone who doesn't refuse it. But clearly, a process of this sort will expand rapidly if it's continued. That is because the grace given enables a person to ameliorate her own inner fragmentation and so to be more willing to be open to love and to goodness. And this increased openness on her part will be met with more grace that grows her in goodness, thereby resulting in more openness and more grace given, and so on. Insofar as suffering opens a person to love or helps to open a person to love and helps to deepen her in closeness to God and others, it's an element in that kind of psychological and spiritual growth. What makes Harriet Tubman so exemplary for all of us increased in her throughout her life. Now, I have no wish to support anything 
that would seem in any way to make light of Harriet Tubman's suffering. The suffering inflicted on her by the people promoting and maintaining slavery highlight the terribleness of the post-fall human disorder for which no words are negative enough. Nonetheless, I want to suggest that Harriet Tubman's life also illustrates well the complicated thought in that Pauline epistle, 2 Corinthians, that I set out earlier. And it also illustrates well the traditional Christian attitude towards suffering represented by that quotation from John Chrysostom with which I began. On the complex thought of the Pauline epistle, in virtue of suffering, a person can grow in flourishing even with irremediable and significant impediments to thriving of body or mind. A person can grow in flourishing until there is in her life such flourishing that it is right to speak of it as glory. Harriet Tubman's flourishing came to her in virtue of her suffering, and the result is that her life is an example of the best that a human life can be. The connection that the epistle makes between suffering and glory is illustrated in her life. And her life also illustrates the epistle's claim that consolation increases with affliction. Harriet Tubman is as exceptional in her ongoing religious experience as in her great-heartedness and her suffering. And that is evident not only from her own testimony, but also from the testimony of other people who knew her. Her contemporary biographer summed the matter up this way. The biographer says, Harriet spoke of consulting with God, and she trusted that God would keep her safe. Thomas Garrett once said of her, I never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And this evaluation of Harriet Tubman's religious life is surely right. It's overwhelmingly attested to in the contemporary uh, literature. At any rate, it's highly doubtful whether any of those in the relatively well-to-do slaveholding communities around her lived in the kind of ongoing powerful religious experience she had. And so the epistle's correlation of glory and of consolation with suffering seems well illustrated in her life. And this way of thinking of suffering is not hard to see why John Chrysostom thought that those people who suffer more are the people who are especially dear to God. And here it's important to me to highlight what I am not claiming. I am not claiming that the good of human flourishing justifies any human being in causing or permitting or failing to remedy suffering of the sort Tubman endured, if that can be easily remedied. To say that a person flourishes as she does, at least in part in virtue of her suffering, that doesn't imply that it would be acceptable for another human being to permit it or to cause it or to refuse to remedy it. It's one thing to claim that some suffering can lead to the flourishing of the sufferer, and it's another thing entirely to claim that a person would be justified, a human person would be justified in causing or allowing such suffering on the part of somebody else for the sake of that flourishing. In addition, the consolation that increases with affliction, as the Pauline epistle says, 
that consolation might not come at the same time as the affliction. It might come only way later. Even those who seem to lack all consolation because they are burdened by severe depression or something else that leaves them destitute of ordinary human peace, those people may yet find that their suffering enables them to flourish later with greater peace and greater joy than others who have never experienced such desolation. Finally, somebody might suppose that for every one person such as Harriet Tubman, there are countless other people who don't flourish in their suffering. But what I want to say is that such a claim about the relative proportion of people who suffer without flourishing in consequence, the relative proportion of those people, a claim about that seems to me unsupported by any good evidence. And here's why. Because suffering is not always transparent even to the sufferer, let alone to those around the sufferer. That is to say, you might think you're completely healthy, even if in fact you're suffering from metastasized pancreatic cancer and you're going to die within a month. And flourishing is not transparent either. The lab might have sent you test results that show you're dying of tuberculosis, but it might be that those are somebody else's test results that the lab sent to you by accident, and you, in fact, are completely healthy. So neither suffering nor flourishing are transparent. You don't always know when you've got them. In this respect, consider Sophie Scholl. She attempted to protest the Nazi evil of her time. But she was caught by the Nazis before she'd succeeded in doing much of anything in her protest. The Nazis put her through a speedy show trial and humiliated her and her, uh, her friends in her small movement. And they very quickly executed her once the trial was finished. They buried her in an outcast grave, an unmarked outcast grave at what was then the edge of Munich. Hardly anyone around the world knew who she was. Hardly anyone around the world cared either. But now, if you look her up in Wikipedia, you will find she has honored the world over for her courage and her willingness to risk her life for the sake of justice in her community. That is, she is honored for the great flourishing of her life. And now, her grave is never without fresh flowers. People make their way to it and they leave roses on her grave. So it's possible for a person both to suffer and to flourish in ways invisible to others, at least for a time, at least in this life. But the flourishing is real nonetheless. So consequently, the claim that most sufferers find no flourishing in their suffering is not only unsupported, but in fact, it's such that empirical support for it is, in principle, hard to come by. So with all those caveats, it seems to me right to acknowledge that there is a connection between the flourishing of the life of a sufferer, such as Harriet Tubman, and the suffering she endured. It seems to me true to say, with the thought of the Pauline epistle, that Harriet Tubman flourished in virtue of her suffering. If there is something heartbreakingly shaming about the human species in consequence of its part in such horrors as the slavery of the antebellum South, then the gloriousness of Tubman's life is highlighted by contrast.
with all the impediments as regards mind and body which were a suffering for her, who would not grant that the flourishing of her life greatly outranks that of the slaveholders whose lives had vastly less suffering than hers, or even the lives of the northerners who lived at ease and were content not to mingle themselves in the troubles of others, who would pick one of those southern slaveholders or those indifferent northerners as exemplary of human flourishing? By contrast with the life of Harriet Tubman, their lives look, their lives look, sad, pathetic, shaming for our species. And if, like the slaveholding Southerners or the uninterested Northerners, Harriet Tubman had just lived a life of wealth and comfort, it seems unlikely that she would have become the woman we are now honored to honor. And so there is something deeply right in the traditional Christian attitude about suffering. A person is more than the sum of her mind and body, and there can be a magnificent flourishing of the whole person, not in spite of, but because of the suffering she endures. And with that, I am done. Thank you. So I'm going to assume you'll moderate. You'll moderate questions. We currently have some time for questions, if there's anybody that would like to ask any. You and back. Thank you very much, Professor Fuller. He's doing the next You know what? It's so hard to hear with the mask on. Don't okay. take, don't take, don't take no, your mask off. Be okay. good. Keep your mask on, but just yell a little louder. Okay. okay. I'll try to. Thank you very much for the lesson. It has been great. Uh, I have a couple of questions in order to better understand your account. Maybe I can come here so you can be better. That's nice. That's nice. <laughs> so, um, you know what? Would you like to use the microphone and they can hear you too? Okay. So, I have a couple of questions. Uh, the, first, uh, the first one, in order to better understand your account, uh, I was wondering uh, if you can tell something on what we need in order to flourish as a whole. Is it a matter of, of adaptation or there is something more? And also, I was wondering if you take into consideration virtues in your account and what do you think about the connection between virtues and suffering and uh, if virtues may help uh, a subject to, suffer, to flourish within suffering. Thank okay. You. So I certainly think uh, something is needed for flourishing. What I think is needed is relationships of love. Personal relationships of love are at the heart of human flourishing. And they, not because that's all there is to human flourishing, but because that's the root of human flourishing. I also think it's the root, uh, it's the root of the virtues. So um, my area of specialization, my special area of specialization is Thomas Aquinas. And he's usually read as an Aristotelian. That is, he's usually read as supposing that the moral life consists in the virtues and that you get the virtues by trying hard to acquire them by practicing acts of virtue. And honestly, um, I don't know how to be polite in my rejection of that view. Here's an interesting thing to think about. Aristotle was a pagan. Aquinas was a Christian. Wouldn't it be really odd if a Christian adopted a pagan ethic? I mean, wouldn't that be on the face of it kind of weird? For Aquinas, the root of all moral excellence is love, and you can't get it for yourself. 
You know why? Because Pelagianism is a heresy. That's why. <laughs> it's been a heresy since the patristic period, and by the time you get to Aquinas, there aren't any Pelagians left in the Christian world. So you can't, you can't get a virtue by acquiring it by trying hard. Here's how you get, here's what a virtue is for him. It's a good quality of the mind of which no one can make bad use, by which a person lives rightly, which is worked by God in us without us. No Aristotelian virtue fits that last condition on the definition of virtue. So you might think to yourself, well, in that case, if, if all virtue comes from God's giving it to us, how come we're not all perfectly virtuous? Because what Pelagianism says is you can't get the good stuff for yourself. No problem, you can get the bad stuff for yourself. That's not a problem. So God is not going to stuff against your will, the good stuff into you. If you reject it, if you don't open to it, God doesn't give it. So, and why? Because you don't get love by forcing and bullying somebody else. If what you wanted was loving relations, you can't get it that way. You can wreck it that way, but you can't get it that way. So for Aquinas, all virtue is a function of love, and all virtue is a function of second personal relationship. And it's the openness to love. It's the willingness to, to open to love that can grow and increase a person in virtue. And that is what we see in Harriet Tubman. She escaped from slavery. She was scared to death to go back into slave territory where she was still hunted. And the hunting was brutal. And she went back anyway and rescued person after person after person in the winter, in the dark, in terrible danger of her own life and so on. The stories about her are amazing. So that's what I'm going to say in answer. Thank you very much. Are there any other questions? We'll start with you. Can I have your hand up? Hi, Professor. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, I was uh, wondering, um, it seems that especially uh, in Catholicism or you know, in, in Christian theology, um, the, the good of suffering or the good that comes from suffering is, is kind of treated as a, um, you, you know, a supernatural thing, something, something that goes beyond uh, our kind of natural state, but uh, it also strikes me that even uh, naturally, it seems like certain goods require uh, suffering or at least hardship. I mean, um, to learn a skill or to like improve in, in certain areas, it seems like from from most of the time to do so, you have to attempt the thing, mess up. Um, and in messing up, you you know often undergo hardship. Or even if you don't mess up, it's just the process of becoming better at something is often seems somewhat painful. I don't really know how to make sense of that totally with the idea of evil as, uh, and maybe it's too strong to call it evil, but with the idea of evil as being this kind of you know this thing that comes from the fall. Uh, so I was, I'm sorry, my question is kind of vague, but I was wondering if you could. Uh, comment on that, or uh, if you had any thoughts on that kind of idea. 
Okay, so I think there are lots of good things that you don't need suffering for. And as far as that goes, if there's a God who can do things to make you in some way better or stronger or something, that God can just put good stuff inside you, you know. That's what he does with the prophets, presumably. Gives the prophets great insight into the future and doesn't need suffering for that. So you don't need suffering for all particular kinds of good things. But what you might need suffering for, generally do need suffering for, is some amelioration of the human condition. So some wit, I always forget who it is, some wit said, the only theological doctrine overwhelmingly confirmed by empirical evidence is the doctrine of original sin. And um, he was joking. What he meant was, in every age, in every period, the horribleness of humans to other humans, to beasts, to the earth, the horribleness, the moral horribleness is overwhelmingly apparent. I mean, it's if you once stop to look at humans and what they have done to the earth, the beasts, the vulnerable, the children, the women, the poor, look at it, you wind up feeling as if maybe you should apologize to trees. I'm sorry, tree, I'm a human. And what do you do with a creature like that? Now, one of the things you could think to yourself is, God, why didn't you just annihilate them all early on and start over? Would have been a better idea. But if that's your thought, I hope you never have children of your own. <laughs> so, as a way of dealing with very troublesome children, it's not a really nice way to fix the problem. So, Christian theology suggests that suffering is medicinal for this condition, but that only God has the requisite medical skill to know how to administer this medicine. You're much too stupid to know how to do it. It takes a mind like God's to know the inner workings of a human psyche and to know what in particular, in what kind of circumstances, would make a human psyche more willing to open, more, more, less resistant to receiving the love of others. That's the general idea. And so suffering is a means then for God to help deal with what, in the end, afflicts all of us to one degree or another. That's the basic idea. So that, in the end, what makes us, like Harriet Tubman, lovely is a willingness to open to love the love of God and the love of others. Are there any other questions? Thank you. Uh, so I have a, a little bit of an odd question. Um, <clears throat> So if I, if I recall correctly, Aquinas says that glory is a kind of clarity about someone's goodness, and concurring with Augustine. And when I think about the most glorious people in the scriptures, it's actually the, well, other than God, it's the angels who don't suffer. Um, and I wonder, why is it that there are these creatures that um, are just overwhelmingly glorious, but for which there is just no suffering at all, no suffering needed. Um, and then, as a kind of follow to that question, um, is the answer to that question any, in any way related to uh, Paul's claim that human beings have the capacity to be more glorious than angels in the life to come? 
Okay, so I like all these questions, but I especially like this one right at the moment. So, so it's true that the angels are glorious. That is, not all of them, but some of them. So on Christian theology, some of them are very not glorious. Those are the fallen angels. And for complicated reasons, Christian theology says they can't be redeemed. So they're not glorious, and they don't, I mean, for them, they're not part of the story of glory. The angels that didn't fall are very glorious. For sure they are, and they don't suffer. That's, that's all that is right. However, here's a really interesting thing to notice. Here's an interesting thing to notice. The psalmist says, in the presence of the angels, I will sing your praises, O Lord. Now think about that one for a minute. I mean, if you tried out for a chorus, do you think you would get in? Well, if you think if you tried out for the chorus of the angels, you'd get in? I mean, you can imagine the angels saying to the psalmist, oh, that's so sweet of you, but you know, why don't you just listen to us? <laughs> why would the psalmist think he can sing the praises of the Lord in the presence of the angels? Well, from the patristic period on, there's been an answer to this question. John Chrysostom, for example, actually looks at this question, and he says, it's because humans suffer. And in their suffering, they mirror the love that God is and the love that God has for us. Because the love that God is, is most evident in Christ's suffering on the cross. And when we suffer and hold on to God in love, we mirror that love in a way that is more exemplary of that which God is than anything the angels can do. And that is why Chrysostom says, when the psalmist goes to sing the praises of the Lord, it's his life that is the song he presents. And the angels will really want to listen. So that's the answer. So you said that the opposite of thriving is dysfunction, and then obviously like suffering seems to be the opposite of thriving or flourishing. Can you tease out the difference between dysfunction and suffering? Because it seems that your examples of like the slave owners, that they would be dysfunctional because they're not thriving. And if that's the case, then it seems like they would be suffering, and thus they should have flourishing at some point. So that's a lovely question. It's also, unfortunately, a very complicated question. So um, you can think about um, suffering like this. What exactly is suffering? It's the loss of what we care about. Now, what we care about comes in two forms. There's what we care about because it has objective value for us. And if you don't recognize it, you're just mixed up. So um, food, clothing, shelter, these things have objective value for us. If we're deprived of them entirely, we suffer because we require these things in order to thrive as members of the human species, as what we are, embodied material objects. In addition, however, we can also suffer, even if we are in mint condition as far as things with objective value, we can suffer terribly anyway because in addition to the things we care about because they have objective value for us, there are things we care about because they have subjective value for us. So I have children, no doubt some of you have children, and I don't mean to be rude, but I don't care about your children anything like as much as I care about my children. <laughs> and that's not because I think my children have more objective value than your children. I expect they all have the same infinite value or something. 
but my children have the infinite value they have for me because my heart is set on them. So in addition to the things that have objective value which we recognize, there are things that have the value they do because we love them the way we do. And you suffer if you lose those things. So I have my grandmother's earrings, they're not worth much, but if I lost them I would suffer. Because why? They're her earrings, they matter to me. So so that's the way to think about to think about suffering. So you can suffer uh, a whole lot without having a dysfunction. If you lose the desire of your heart, you're not going to have a dysfunction. Uh, on the other hand, um, you can have a dysfunction with regard to your body, the way Harry McBride Johnson did, or a dysfunction with regard to your mind, as Buzz Aldrin did. And somehow you can wrap those things up in a life that isn't a life of suffering, but is a life of flourishing. That's the point of the Disability Rights Parade. See what I mean? Disability Pride Parade. Because the person is more than the sum of her mind and her body. And you can flourish in great relationships of love, which are the, the upper end, the intrinsic upper end, of the scale for human flourishing. You can, you can flourish in that way because of the way you, you love, because of the way your whole life goes. Even if, like Harriet Tubman, you have, you have uh, impediments in body and impediments in psyche. Even so. And in that case, you are thriving as a human person. You have the things that have objective value for human persons. And you have the desires of your heart and so, just as the disability rights people say, there is joy in such a life. The, the impediment to thriving body or thriving mind can't take away that joy. So that's the way to see it. And if what you have your heart set on is something that's very bad for you, if, for example, you want to maintain your slaveholding status, then you may get your heart's desire, but it will take away from you thriving as a whole person because it will deprive you of the relationships of love that go into joy. So that's what I want to say in response. It was a great, que it, it was a great question and take a long time really to work it all out. That actually concludes all our time for questions, but thank you all for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you.